as people are trickling in, um, maybe I'll open by doing a little bit of a review of uh, what we did in the first class. And, uh, and then we'll have some space um, for all of us. Yeah, maybe I see some of you closing your eyes. Maybe even just take a moment to pause and uh, gather yourselves on the cushion, on the seats, wherever you are. Just collecting our energy and to allow ourselves to settle here. The moment of here and now. And so in the last class, um, we offered some teachings um, around the dimensionality of this topic that we used word faith, or maybe more accurately uh, used this acronym CRAFT. Confidence, uh, refuge, aspiration, faith, and trust, and maybe more, many more words. And so we shared a bit about um, the rich dimensions of this quality, and that's within us, and uh, as we cultivate uh, crafting our path, um, this is an important force. And we also spoke a bit about different kinds of practices one may engage in, in cultivating, growing, maturing, sada, the Pali term. We we use the word faith uh, here, uh, just to kind of, as a shorthand. And so the practices uh, might involve uh, many different ways, uh, taking refuges and and devotional practices, and David showed um, a little altar uh, that he has um, in his meditative space. And so we left the class by suggesting maybe practicing with this. So we have a few minutes to uh, invite any of you to share how it might be after the first class and uh, anything bubbled up in your practice or um, questions. And so we have a few minutes to just inviting some sharing from the field, sharing questions, reflections. You can use your Zoom hand uh, if um, Uh, Otherwise, I can't also see you on the screen, so. Okay, Kim. Hi, good morning. Um, I I, I thought about something that you had brought up, um, actually, um, that that Ying had, you had brought up, Ying, about asking that question about why Buddhism. And, and, you know, I've been a practitioner for uh, about 25 years, so it's been a... um, you know, just a very rich and um, and I have my altar, you know, set up and I have for, for years, actually. And, and just for other people who don't, it does make a huge difference to have a place to just 
that is dedicated. And you can move it around, of course. And if I go somewhere else for a long period, I might bring something to remind me. But, you know, I have a picture of my teacher on it. I have a picture of, you know, people who have passed away who I really love and miss. And, you know, if I'm dedicating merit, you know, they're they're sometimes the ones that I want to dedicate it to, not always. But, um, and, you know, I'm kind of a um, cover all your bases kind of girl because, you know, I'm definitely a Buddhist. <laughs> you know, I have a couple of pictures of Mary that people have given me or a beautiful <laughs> statue of Tara. Um, and so, you know, I'm an equal opportunity. You know, you never know <laughs> what door is going to open, right? Yeah. Um, but, um, but I asked myself a question that um, I hadn't asked myself in a long time and it was really helpful. And I, I thought, you know, why Buddhism? Mm. You know, when you said, like, what drew you to it? And, mm. and you know, it, it really wasn't a, a moment per se, but it's just an interesting thing to reflect on. So simply now, um, looking back over 25 years of practice. Um, yeah. So that was really the thing that I, those two things that I wanted to add. Mm. Beautiful, beautiful. I think of this an aspect of really along the path uh, we uh, began to clarify our intentions and our motivations and more and more so this kind of a faith and trust are imbued with a more and more deeper kind of understanding and so periodically dropping the question why why do i do this what what you know it may not be like a logical answer but you're allowing yourself to feel into uh, this movement. And so we get more and more clear um, in our own system why we're doing this. Yeah, and I beautiful. think it changes. That's right. That's you know, right. I think that, and I think that's when I first heard you say that, and I thought back and I thought, why was I doing this? And I think a lot of people come to Buddhism because they're suffering. You know, yeah. I mean, they're, you know, they're trying to find a way to figure this out. Yeah. Um, you know, we find, yeah. I think, you know, there isn't really a manual yeah. for this life, yeah. you know? Yeah, yeah. And, yeah. And I think the ability to kind of look at it and see that it does, it does change. And that, and I think it's also really helpful when the practice is hard. Yes. And I think that there are moments where you hit these kind of difficult, very difficult periods, and they can be long periods of difficult. Yes. Wonderful. I'm just <laughs> music to my ears. I love what you shared. Yeah. Yeah, keep that question alive. Beautiful. Hmm. Anyone else? Maybe yeah. I'll say Please. something. Yeah. Um, years ago, I used to like chant the Metta Sutta before I sat, and that has just fallen away. And I thought, oh, maybe I'll uh, start doing that again. And uh, it turned out to be beautiful. It was just so nice to kind of like chant the Metta Sutta again. I have, uh, I don't know, all kinds of nice things associated with it, and it just puts the mind in a lovely state before uh, sitting. So maybe I'll just share that I'm participating in this class as well as teaching this class. So uh, yeah. thank you. That's right. We're all doing that. We're all uh, participating in the, in the class and playing a different role sometimes. Yeah. So maybe that's enough. And um, I'll shift the gear and to uh, let the Diana uh, offer the first teaching for the day. Yeah.
Thank you. Thank you, Ying. So I'd like to start with um, a story that's uh, in the suttas about somebody who didn't want to craft their own path. In fact, they wanted a shortcut. In fact, they even wanted a really simple shortcut. This idea of like, oh, if I could just get somebody else to do something magical, then I'll be happy and have peace and freedom. It's as long as I can manipulate somebody else to do things. This is my interpretation of it. But clearly here's some, it was a story of somebody who just didn't want to uh, craft their own path. And then what does the Buddha do? How does he respond? And what teachings does he give? So here's a story. It's um, about Prince Bodhi. And he had this new building built. It's called the Pink Lotus Longhouse. I just love this name, Pink Lotus Longhouse. And uh, nobody had um, occupied it yet. And to kind of like uh, initiate the building, to like christen the building, if you if you want, in some kind of way, he invited the Buddha and his monastics uh, to come. And in preparation for the Buddha, he uh, put this white cloth that went through the length of the house, a long house, as you might, as the name suggests, it's just a long building, uh, probably just one giant room. Uh, uh, so this white cloth goes all through the building and then even goes down the steps uh, to the ground. And um, when the Buddha shows up, Prince Bodhi says, you know, you know, after you. And uh, it's, and the Buddha walked towards the pink lotus longhouse, gets to the edge of the white cloth and uh, stops. And Prince Bodhi says, venerable sir, Please step on the white cloth so that it may be for my welfare and happiness for a long time. And the Buddha just stands there. He doesn't say anything. He doesn't do anything. He's just standing there. A second time, maybe maybe the prince thought the Buddha didn't hear. So he says a second time, Venerable Sir, please step on the white cloth so that it may be for my welfare and happiness for a long time. Again, the Buddha just stands there. A third time, and in Diana's mind, it goes like this, Venerable Sir, please step on the white cloth. You know, we can imagine that maybe, you know, he's getting a little bit irritated, so that it may be for my welfare and happiness for a long time. The Buddha is still standing there, but he looks over at Ananda. He looks over at his attendant, his cousin, doesn't say anything, he just looks over at Ananda. Ananda understands. Ananda figures out like what's happening here. And then Ananda says, fold up the cloth, Prince. The Buddha will not step on the white cloth. He has compassion for future generations. I give Ananda a lot of credit for this. Like he figured out what was happening. So how might we interpret this? You could say that Prince Bodhi had this idea that if a Buddha stepped on a white cloth, something good would happen. It would be for his welfare and happiness for a long time. So he had this idea that Prince Bodhi, he could just be passive. And just as long as an awakened person did something for him, then he would be fine. He didn't actually need to do anything except trick, quote unquote, a Buddha to step in a particular place. But Ananda, who says, no, the Buddha will not step on the white cloth because he has compassion for future generations. Ananda recognizes, oh, well, 
if the Buddha steps on the white cloth and the prince has welfare and happiness for a long time, you know, that would be great. But then people will start to think, oh, I don't need to practice. I don't need to do anything. I just got to get this Buddha guy to step on a white cloth. I'm being a little bit, um, I don't want to be disrespectful, but I'm just trying to make this be irrelevant. I'm being, speaking a little uh, cheekily, maybe. But not only that, if let's say somebody uh, did uh, get, an, the Buddha did do that, and then an arhat were to step on a white cloth, and the person who asked them to step on the white cloth, they did not have welfare and happiness, maybe a lot of terrible things happened to them, then everybody would say, that whole Buddhism thing, it doesn't work. Look, this guy stepped on a white cloth and my life didn't go well. So I love that how there's this uh, recognition, Ananda, he kind of figures out like, no, this is not what uh, spiritual life is about. It's not about finding shortcuts. It's not about getting something outside of us to be perfect. It's not about getting somebody else to zap us into happiness or, you know, magically do something like that. It's not about that at all. Right? We have to like craft our own path. So the after the meal, I'm getting back to the story, um, Prince Bodhi says to the Buddha, pleasure is only gained through pain. Pleasure is only gained through pain. So now maybe we can understand why Prince Bodhi didn't want to craft his own path because he thinks it's going to be painful and maybe nothing but pain. Pleasure, that is, maybe finding more freedom and peace is going to all be so difficult and maybe only difficult. And the Buddha replies by saying, you know, I'm paraphrasing, yes, I thought that too before I was awakened. And in fact, I did all these uh, austerities, right? Part of the Buddha's path towards awakening is to do all these austerities, these um, ascetic practices. And and one of his ascetic practices that he uh, thought that he needs to control his mind. And he said, why don't I, with teeth clenched and tongue pressed against the roof of my mouth, why don't I squeeze, squash, and crush mind with mind? This is the Buddha describing his practice before he became awakened. So that's what I did until sweat poured from my armpits. My energy was roused up and unflagging, and my mindfulness was established and lucid, but my body was disturbed and not tranquil because I pushed too hard with that painful striving. So the Buddha is describing how he went the opposite from what Prince Bodhi thought it's painful. And the, the Buddha is saying, yeah, I thought it was painful too. And I did these painful things, but I didn't get awakened. So then the Buddha offers, here is a way to craft the path. Here's like how to apply oneself. Here's how to endeavor towards awakening. Here are some things to do, to keep in mind, to work with. And these are the five factors of endeavoring. Five factors of endeavoring. I'll just say them, and then I'm, I'm going to talk a little bit about them. Confidence, vitality, integrity, energy, and wisdom. These 
five factors. We might say this is something like um, five factors of uh, applying oneself, five factors of um, like working, like anything that you have to um, apply some effort to or some diligence to. Confidence, vitality, integrity, energy, and wisdom. So confidence. Just want to say a few words about this. It's um it's if before we're going to start to do something, to do anything, we need to have a certain amount of confidence that it is worth doing and that it's possible to do. And this is a silly example, but how many of you are practicing strengthening your arms so that you can fly? <laughs> Probably zero, right? Because we know the humans don't fly. So we don't have any confidence that flying is possible. So why would we do this? So it's this um, idea that, okay, I'm going to do something that I know that uh, it's I can get there. So it has to be possible. And there also has to be some confidence that I can do it. That I can f- or at least move along this path. So... It's, this is the poly where the yin uh, has been saying sada is faith. I'm using it as confidence. Same poly word. You're welcome to use confidence, conviction, faith. These are three synonyms for this same poly word. Um, yeah, sada. In poly, we would say sada, but Dharma teachers say sada. So it's a, yeah, so that's uh, the word. So sada confidence or faith. So that's where it begins. And then the next one is vitality. Like you need to have enough vitality to at least like listen to a Dharma talk. You don't have to have enormous strength. You don't have to have perfect health. In fact, right, how many people come to the Dharma because they don't have perfect health, because they don't uh, have uh, tremendous strength. This is often the dukkha that leads us to the path. So you just need some vitality. And there's even a, a sutta in which the Buddha is feeling sick. And he lays down. And uh, somebody chants the seven factors of awakening for him. So he just wanted to be able to hear the Dharma. So this vitality is just enough to like maybe hear the Dharma, hear a Dharma talk. But also, a certain amount of vitality to be able to relax. That is to recognize, oh man, I'm getting all uh, tangled up here with my uh, declining health or this injury I have or whatever it might be. And recognize how when we like get filled with uh, rage or anger about our um, health, then that, uh, I'm sure all of us have this experience, it doesn't help. It just makes things worse. As much as we can bring ease to our experience, it allows things to unfold in a much more easeful manner. So the vitality is also to just be able to recognize, oh yeah, when I go down this thought train, it's not so helpful. But when I go down another thought train, and when I'm able to bring some ease, that is more helpful. So vitality, be able to relax and maybe maybe, uh, being able to be, to recognize what is supportive and what isn't supportive. 
And I'll say that the sutta, it talks about vitality in health, uh, really the only way that they understood health at this time in ancient India. It was really, you know, of course, they don't have medicine like we have today. And they didn't have an understanding of physiology and anatomy like we do today, of course not. So for them, a lot of health was measured by one's digestion. Can you digest things well? Can you keep it down? Do you have a lot of diarrhea? Right? We can imagine if you do a lot of vomiting or diarrhea, that was lethal back then. I mean, today, we also have concerns about digestion, whether how our digestion is, but we also have a whole lot of other concerns. So I'm going to say that this uh, poly word, it's two words, apabado and apatanko, they're often uh, translated as health. I'm using the word vitality because you don't, sometimes we read this word health and we think that, well, I'm here because my health is failing. For many of people, this is the case. So I don't want to think, I don't want to give the impression that you need to be healthy. You just have to have enough vitality. Gotta listen to a Dharma talk. Recognize what helpful isn't helpful. The third is integrity. And this means about not being deceitful, not being fraudulent, not being devious, but instead to be honest and open. And in the suttas, this gets described as, in particular, being honest and open with one's teacher and with one's companions on the spiritual path. This recognition that if somebody's really going to support you in your path of practice, they need to understand you or know you or know your struggles as well as know what's going well. They like to share both. This is what's doing okay, where I, I feel like um, I'm uh, learning and growing, and here's where I feel a little bit stuck. So this idea of integrity is being... Um, not being deceitful or not hiding. We might also translate this as like being authentic. But I don't want to suggest that we have to let it all hang out and tell everybody everything, right? There's also some discernment here. But to talk, to share with the teacher what's really happening. The fourth, energy. And this is uh, defined in the same way as like right effort we might find in the Eightfold Path recognizing that there are skillful attitudes and actions and unskillful attitudes and actions. And then to, as best we can, abandon the unskillful and cultivate the skillful ones. We could say this in some ways is a summary of the whole path. So just an energy to abandon unskillful attitudes and actions, mind states, things we do, and cultivate the skillful ones. And then wisdom. There's a way wisdom is so important. It's an integral part. And I'll say that there are a number of lists that start with faith. If any list starts with faith, it ends with wisdom. Every single one. There's a number of that aren't so commonly known. But so there's this idea that part of this path of practice is to have faith and have it transform into wisdom. And in particular, in the suttas, this type of wisdom that's associated with uh, crafting our path, these five factors for endeavoring, is the wisdom of recognizing inconstancy and impermanence. 
recognize things change. Of course they do. Like nothing's permanent. That's inherent in this whole idea that we can craft a path is that things can change. So confidence, vitality, integrity, energy, and wisdom. These five factors of endeavoring that help us along this path. And with that, I'll turn it over to Kim. Great. Thank you very much, Diana. So now we have an opportunity um, for you to talk a bit among yourselves about the new things we've added into our teaching today. So we'll do some breakout groups. And in particular, uh, we'd just like to reiterate the kind of frame and container that we create in these groups where we want to be sensitive to just listening to what others are sharing. And uh, it's not really a time to all come to an agreement on something or to evaluate or to give advice, but more that you're creating a mosaic together. And um, I heard some reports from the last one that it worked well. So please continue in that same vein. And the question that you'll be discussing is, on your path so far, what have you been motivated to do or commit to based on faith or confidence? So starting with that first term in the factors of endeavoring the confidence, um, what is it that it has uh, energized you to move toward, probably not flying, um, but uh, uh, could be something else like, um, like moving towards integrity, cleaning up one's ethics or showing up more authentically in your life. Often people discover on the path that there are certain ways in which they're, they haven't been really true in their lives. And once we start practicing mindfulness in the path, we can't live out of sync like that anymore so maybe you've been motivated to make a change like that or it could be very practical you know you you're now sit every day or you decided to go on a retreat or um, using wise speech more often all kinds of possibilities so the question is maybe someone can put it in the chat on your path so far what have you been motivated to do or commit to based on faith or confidence and I keep tripping in my mind that what Diana talked about on the five factors of endeavoring, that you can make an acronym out of it that's uh, C-View, which is pretty good. <laughs> C-V-I-E-W, right? C-View. So maybe that can guide us also. Okay, so are we ready to go? So maybe the first person to share could be the person who has the longest hair. Then we can go down in hair length from there and make sure that everybody has a chance to share. Okay, that looks like everyone is back. Welcome. So, we didn't get to hear any of your wonderful conversations. And now is a period when you could share a bit about 
what came up or any questions that you have or anything about um, Diana's teaching that's lingering for you. So um, it would be wonderful if a few people wanted to offer some things. Hi. Um, yeah, thank you for this. I love this this prompt. It, it really got me thinking, as do all of these classes. Um, what I mentioned in our group was how in order to begin this path in the first place, I had to have some faith. <laughs> and right. that faith um, fed the confidence. The more I learn, the more I question, the more I question, the more I learn. And that strengthens that faith. Um, this is always reminds me to follow the Four Noble Truths when I get confused. And, and um, one of the members mentioned the precepts which is a great guideline. So just a reminder of all these things just deepens my path and my curiosity. And it kind of, it kind of wets my curiosity to want to learn more and, and do more on this path. So thank you so much for this. Deeply appreciate it. Thank you. That was beautiful. Interesting. Your own practice. You've seen the multidimensionality of this word faith. It has, it's not just one thing. Beautiful, thank you. Can be very onward leading. Hi. So um, I remember many years ago when I came across um, a book, I think it was La Masuria Das, um, and understanding that, that there is a path, that there's something I can do, there is a manual. It felt to me like, this is a manual. <laughs> I thought it was amazing. And reading it, it it just all rang so true to me. And I guess I never thought of faith, really. I mean, for many years, I didn't think of faith because I wasn't reading suttas. But um, I guess I've never doubted. I've doubted my own ability, but I haven't doubted the path ever uh, because it rang so true and then when I started to see changes for myself that's that was it so yeah thank you thank you hi um, thank you I think for me I uh, I started this around I started my my practice around uh, the pandemic. And I came into it wanting some relief from my depression and stress. And when it started to offer that, I felt like I kind of got the wrong idea about it. And I just thought that meditation practice was, you know, some kind of feel good, like, you know, little, like my own little thing that I came upon, like, yay, you know, good for me, you know. and it kind of, uh, let's say a little bit later, started changing. And I was like, what happened? You know, maybe I need to bump up, you know, my meditation time. Something's wrong, you know. And I kind of feel like I'm just making that other, like, turn to, no, I have a wrong idea about what the practice is. 
And it isn't just like to feel good and to make you not depressed, you know, so that you don't have to, you know, be stressed ever, you know. And so, I mean, that part was kind of nice that now I'm kind of like, oh, yeah, you know, you just, you know, it really is there just so that you can be with, you know, whatever it is, which sometimes I don't like what it is, but, you know, it's like, okay, yeah, you know. I wasn't doing anything wrong or, you know, and I do have like almost like a stronger faith that this does work. And I just have to, you know, get my idea about what I thought it was, you know, just change it a little bit because it was like, I had the wrong idea. You know? I'm like that guy that wanted to put it to step on the white cloth. You know? So it was like, Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Okay. You know? So anyway, thank you for that. But it's a part of a lot of them. Um, for me, just like, oh, yeah, that is what my path has been doing for these past, like. Nice. Well, what I love about what you said is that if you point to the way that it can, it's kind of self-correcting. We do have wrong ideas because we're not awake yet. And yet, if we just keep doing the practice, these things get kind of revealed and straightened out over time. Prince Bodhi ended up getting a teaching that was useful to him. He started out with this idea of a ritual and the Buddha's going to do this for me and blah, blah, blah. And then, but you know, once the Buddha didn't comply with that, he got a teaching that was so helpful for him. And in the same way, you know, we start out trying to make the path into to serve our ego in some way. And it won't in the end. <laughs> and, mm-hmm. uh, but it will become, does it feel to you like things have become a little more aligned, a little more true, a little more integrity in the way the path is operating? Yeah, yeah, yeah it does. Yeah. It does feel like more, more real, real. Like, yeah, like, oh, yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah. This, yeah. I mean, this is like real life. And it isn't like my practice and then my real life. It's like, yeah. it's starting to feel more like, oh, this is real life. Okay. Nice. Thank yeah. you. Thank you. Hi, this is my, again, kind of coming in the middle of the class. I just notice it. Usually my mornings are not free around this time, but I'm fortunate today (laughs) to be able to join. Um, Thank you, Diana. Um, uh, I just, I guess my question was to, I'm learning the Pali words for the English And so I wanted to know the Pali word for after sadha, the vitality, integrity, and energy, and the rest of the four, Um, if you have the Pali word. So I'm just looking them up, yeah. Yeah, I do have them. Um, I'm trying to think, what's the most helpful? I I could say them, but... uh... Um, maybe I could put them in the chat because like how yeah. to them is, might be yeah, yeah. <laughs> or more helpful. Okay. And is there, is there a sutta for that yes. uh, teaching? Yeah. Yes. And we will be giving that at the end of the, this course where you'll uh, receive uh, the passage where um, this teaching is and you can look at it. It's, if you want to look it up right now, it's Majjama Nikaya 85. Okay. Thank you. Yeah, and also I'll invite any of the other teachers to make comments on what's been said so far, if anyone has anything to add. Okay, it's, it's really short. I just want to say a few words about faith and confidence. 
because, you know, sometimes it wavers, right? And so what I really found helpful was just about two weeks ago at IMC, we did a rededication of the Four Noble Truth and the precepts. And to see all the people there, we talked about sanghas. It was just so reinforcing that, yeah, I still got to keep on going <laughs> no matter what, you know. Um, and I think sometimes you, you just need that um, extra push or encouragement that was obviously there in that room um, two weeks ago when we, we dedicated ourselves. Very good. Thank you. All right. Ying. Yeah, it's just so lovely to hear about the reflections and sharing that there's a sense of um, the different factors, the wisdom, the energy, the vitality, sea view <laughs> that uh, Kim was saying um, is uh, working in us. And so, um, so in this talk, <clears throat> I want to offer a teaching and that points to the liberative potential of uh, Sada. Um, and this is based on the teaching some of you may know and called a liberative dependent arising, uh, where faith um, sets forth a flow that unfolds and then lead to awakening and ending of dukkha. And so that's what the, Diana was using the word possible, possibility. And so there is a possibility that uh, sada um, can, uh, has a liberative potential with, uh, with the unfolding. And, but for sada to be infused with this liberative potential, some important conditions are needed. Um, in this sutta, this is a, a sutta called Upanisa Sutta in Samyutta Nikaya, and we'll offer uh, the uh, passages also later. Um, and this is SN 12.23, and this speaks about how this liberative unfolding, which actually has 12 elements in it that one links to the next, and this flow was evoked by the condition of dukkha or suffering. Some of people already mentioned this in your own sharing and report. And this is an important link. So there is a link between dukkha and the liberative flow, or dukkha and faith. Um, sometimes on surface, um, it may not make a whole lot of sense. We all know that just by experiencing dukkha, doesn't necessarily automatically lead to having certain kind of a faith and trust on a path. Uh, in fact, often when we are not paying attention uh, to how uh, dukkha functions and how it arises and passes away, our habitual mind tend to react um, based on our endless strategies you know our ego has a lot of strategies and we've been operating like that for a long while uh, our likes and dislikes are wanting and not wanting greed aversion and so we can keep on kind of spinning around and sometimes we get temporary relief um, and then we think you know we got it 
then we keep some uh, swimming in the same pattern. Um, so it's not automatic that uh, dukkha would lead to a liberative flow. So what else is needed besides the experience of a dukkha for a liberative potential to arise? And this is, this is where the opening statement of the Upanisa Sutta pointed to, and it says this. I'm going to read this passage here. Practitioners, I say that the ending of defilements is for one who knows and sees, not for one who does not know and does not see. So there are a couple of key words here. Ending of a defilement um, can be understood as a kind of a synonym of ending dukkha or awakening and uh, freedom. But here in this statement, the Buddha pointed out that seeing and knowing is necessary. It's inevitable. Only with the seeing and knowing that ending dukkha is possible, not without knowing or seeing. And it's in this context, the rest of the uh, teaching unfolded. And so that's kind of an overarching aspect of this teaching. And for dukkha to set forth uh, sada, a faith or confidence and trust that leads to liberation, Seeing and knowing dukkha in some new perspectives are needed. In particular, some of you have uh, mentioned that the seeing and knowing the um, how the dukkha arises, how dukkha ends, and uh, knowing a path that leads to the ending of a dukkha, that's inevitable. And so some of you know this, this is the teachings of the Four Noble Truths. And this is what the uh, Upanisa pointed to right after this statement. The Buddha spoke about, oh, uh, seeing and knowing this Four Noble Truths is necessary. And that's the, uh, that's the relationship uh, that we have, which is really getting to know Dukkha. And some of you in your report or sharing also indicated that we're not just going to look for something really pleasant, but we know the value of staying in contact with Dukkha for us to learn. And so this process of getting to know and see the Four Noble Truths is often a gradual one. And you mentioned that things shift and change. And it's possible some of us began by listening to a Dharma talk. You know, for many years, uh, our teacher, Gil Fausto, would um, start the new year, the first talk, uh, with noble, uh, for noble truth. And so that will be the first talk of each year for many years. And uh, we can intellectually understand that, oh yeah, there is a possible path that leads to freedom. There is a way. And that's enough for us to evoke some degree of 
are sata, some degrees of faith and trust, and then we can begin to practice according to the path. But um, we all know very quickly <laughs> that there are lots of ups and downs. Uh, as I think uh, uh, Kim, uh, one of you mentioned that sometimes we're. It's a long period of downtime before we kind of navigate uh, into uh, some form of a balance, and so we have to craft our path. And this is why faith and trust is essential. And that kind of that can sound a little dry and maybe even a little discouraging, but there is also good news. That this liberative flow that begins with、um, faith is not at all an arduous kind of a dry unfolding. On the contrary, and this flow is natural and beautiful and、uh, uplifting. And in Diana's teaching, now we heard that the relationship between. Confidence and vitality and energy. When one has、uh, confidence and trust uh, in uh, the Buddha Dharma and Sangha,、uh, or in the path, there is kind of uplift that can happen. That maybe strengthens our heart and mind, even in the midst of challenging situations. In the Sutta. I want to speak about this unfolding a little bit, and it says that sada is a condition that leads to pamoja, and I'll offer the、uh, Pali term a little later、uh, in the chat box,、um, or maybe my co-teachers could do that, and、um, and we will offer the、uh, sutta also later on. But、uh, it said that sada leads、uh, sada as a condition. It leads to pamoja.、Uh, pamoja often gets translated as delight or gladness. Delight naturally arises out of a trusting, confident heart. And sometimes, even when we're experiencing something unpleasant. Because our heart kind of feels that possibility, it can get uplifted, and that uplift has this quality of delightness or gladness. These are some of the words used to translate this. And when we open to that possibility,、um, and we can see, oh, you know, we can be in.、Um, An unpleasant situation, and not automatically given to our reactivity of wanting to get rid of a get rid of it or beat it down or collapse, but rather there is a kind of uplift in us, and that can be really a boosting. That can be a real boost to our trust and confidence in the path. And then it continues by saying, "Pamoja being the condition, it leads to piti.、Uh, with piti as condition, it leads to pasada,
With pasada as condition, it leads to sukha. As sukha, with sukha as a condition, it leads to samadhi. And so, this list of words are translated often as、um, uh, joy, tranquility, happiness, and concentration. And、um, these five things. I notice we've been saying about five things here for a while. These five things、um, are sometimes known as happiness or gladness pentad.、Um, so there is this kind of flow that can happen as well, and the pity sometimes gets translated uh, um, as joy. Uh, is this when our heart and mind are delightful and、um, are glad? What can happen is it sets forth an alchemical change in our body. You know, our body can feel wow, just this kind of a delightful energy in it. And pity often has this energetic field in the body. Uh, again, this can happen whether or not we feel something unpleasant、uh, in our field of experience, but and the alchemical change can happen in the body. If we are not trying to tinker with this process, trying to make it bigger, make it smaller, and this energetic field can also naturally settle down, and that's a natural process as well. And hence,、uh, tranquility can come in, and with tranquility, there can be a kind of sweet happiness, which is what this Pali term sukha points to. And when there is this kind of happiness setting in, the mind naturally settles and collects, unifies, and that's what the word samadhi is pointing to. Because it's not agitated by all the wanting and not wanting, and from there it sets for, forth a deeper kind of a knowing, a clear kind of a knowing and seeing that allows the liberative insights to come forth. And this is where the potential、um, of this unfolding can lead to. And so you can see, and that this liberative unfolding is imbued with、uh, qualities of goodness, nourishment, and it's available、uh, to our human beings to experience. And when we're getting out of the way of trying to manage our way in this process, this process is actually natural. And the sutta ended with a nature-based simile to point to this natural unfolding of the liberative flow. And I'm going to read this、uh, to end this part of the talk. And it says, "It's like when it rings heavily on the mountain top, and the water flows downhill to fill the hollows." Crevices and creeks. As they become full, they fill up the pools. 
The pools fill up the lakes. The lakes fill up the streams, and the streams fill up the rivers. And as the rivers become full, they fill up the ocean. May we all allow this unfolding to happen naturally. So I'll pass it on to David for a guided meditation. Thank you, Yang, and thanks to Kim for putting the poly terms in this order that Yang has described、uh, in the in the chat. So let's take, if we can, some of、uh, what Yang has just shared by way of formal teaching into a brief guided meditation. Maybe find yourself.、Uh, A comfortable place in your surroundings. I see people shifting around. Find a spot, and maybe given our focus a little bit yesterday or Tuesday on ritual, do this settling in with a certain attention to、um, to the specialness of this. When we recognize a suffering in our lives, a suffering around us that is an inevitable part <clears throat> of being in this realm. We we take the practice.、Um, we 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 gather our attention in the in the sitting practice in a way that meets that suffering. And、uh, to be able to do so, to have the guidance to do so, to have the instructions to do so, is a is a wonderful gift. <clears throat> so maybe as we sit, even as we just bring our attention to the sitting, now we can.、Um, Feel some gratitude for the opportunity for being together. We can bring attention to the body and its breathing, just noticing wherever we pick it up the rise and fall of the of the breath moving the body. And as we do so, we can maybe tune in a little bit to the momentum that Ying describes. Maybe in the breath, we can have that sense a little bit of in our practice the way a light rain,、um, the droplets of a light rain gather. They gather in a little pool of ease, a little pool of. Tranquil attention, and then move with gravity's tug down a little deeper, a little more settled. And even in a brief meditation like this one, we can we can sort of bring our attention to this momentum using. Uh, as a simple object, the body, which is available in the breathing, or in sounds, or in physical sensations, whenever we sit in meditation, we do so sort of in the middle of a complicated world of. Internal 
stress, awareness of unsatisfactoriness. Some suffering, maybe. Within us and without us, there's this awareness of the challenges we face. And yet, we can bring to it this confidence, this trust, this faith, if we want, in this practice to help us meet our experience. And as we settle it a little bit into that confidence or trust or faith, we may feel a sort of lightness arise, a little of the delight, the gladness, the pamoja that Ying spoke of. Maybe there's just a sense of a little bit of a lightening of the burden on the shoulders, the weight of the world we carry as we meet our experience with this wonderful practice. With this confidence, Trust, faith as a condition. We may feel some of the sweet happiness that Yang mentioned. What a lovely phrase. Or a sweet contentment begin to spread. Doesn't have to be the only thing that happens or that's going on or that we're aware of. And yet the confidence in the practice can bring an easeful, settled way of meeting experience into our lives. And this is a very special contentment or ease or happiness that comes with the practice. It's special because it doesn't depend on conditions outside of us. It emerges, springs forth from deep within, from from the practice itself. It's a contentment or an ease or a happiness that we can lean into, we can trust. We can sense that it points forward, points deeper, points onward in the practice. And with this, following from our 
sense of refuge and gratitude through our awareness of suffering. met by our confidence in the path, supporting the light, gladness, sweet happiness, sweet contentment. The mind can become steady, still, collected, easeful. And if we bring ourselves back a bit from the specific nature of some of these words, we can still feel the momentum here. The momentum like water tugged downhill by gravity, gathering in small rivulets, becoming creeks, flowing into streams and rivers, and inevitably arriving in the great oceans. Just being aware of the onward tug of the practice. And further strengthen our confidence that it leads towards greater ease and freedom for us and for all beings.
Thank you. I um, I attempted to ring a sweet, a bell of sweet happiness and contentment three times at the end of that sit. And looking around, I had the impression that possibly it wasn't audible. I'll um, I did use the magic musician settings. I'm changing it back now. So I provided a verbal bell as well. So thank you for joining joining me, us, in, in that little exploration. I um, want to open it now to some questions. I, I think I would just reflect on the meditation, something that strikes me always as very, uh, really quite a, a joyful thing in the practice, is that the way the formal teachings that um, Diana presented and Ying presented today can be taken immediately and their immediacy is somehow even intensified when brought directly into the meditation. So when, when we sit down to do the meditation, it indeed is a special thing, a special opportunity, a special gift, and thus it merits a special place, you know, in our day and in our, uh, in our, the, the places we, we live and, and, uh, practice. So yeah, do people, are there questions? We have a few minutes for questions, uh, for Ying, for Diana. Uh, I see Diana and Ying and Diana and Kim have both been, uh, contributing to the, to the, uh, chat, the poly terms and other, other details of the teachings. So feel free to wave your, your, uh, zoom hand and Pelt us with any questions or observations that are on your heart and mind. Any questions at all? Maybe people are feeling really nice after that meditation. That would please me. And please, please, all of the four of us. But David, uh, I think Robin is uh, showing her hand. Oh, okay. Robin, I didn't see your hand. Please. Can you hear me? Can you yeah. hear me? Yes. Okay, good, good. Um, I just had a question uh, for you, actually, from from Tuesday. And it has to do with chanting. Uh, I'm a musician and I would really love to learn some of the chants. However, you know, what I did was sort of go onto YouTube and there's an incredibly long, fast chanting. And I was curious as to whether there's uh, a beginner's guide to <laughs> doing some chanting. That's a good question. Robin, I don't have a quick, easy answer. I will say that there, and I'm looking around for it. I moved recently and uh, the book isn't right at my fingertips, but there's a book that's, um, and I'll find it and put it in the chat. That's called, um, uh, I think it's called Pali Suttas for Chanting. And hmm. among other things, it, it's useful to, um, in that it identifies some chants that are commonly used and it would provide a way to, to at least have the text both in Pali and in English translation handy when confronted with, as you say, kind of a, the YouTube experience of chanting. I, I see. 
So let me put, I'm going to find that and put that in the chat, if not today, tomorrow. And let me ask Diana, who just unmuted, and or Kim and Ying, whether they might also direct you to some resources. I'll um, direct you to Bayagiri uh, website because they have the audio recordings. Because like Polly, when we try to pronounce them, their words not it's not so easy to pronounce them in English. Thank you, Ying. Just Ying, just put it uh, in the chat, and that's where I've learned. Um, just like by listening to them over and over again is how I've kind of like learned the chant. So there. Um, Did you say that? So. Do you see in the chat, Ying just put a link to Abayagiri. That's a monastery here in Northern California. And it's of people doing some chants and it's lovely to listen to. And they have a chant book. And in addition is what just, um, who put this in? Uh, uh, Carmen put the Buddhist suttas for recitation. So that's a book you can read. Yeah. And at Abayagiri, or the reading and Buddhist listening. Theory. Giri. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. And, and you know, the uh, hmm. Bayagiri website you see down below, and there is a uh, karaoke you can follow <laughs> to practice <laughs> with it. <laughs> so how the, I suppose how the new monastics also do that <laughs> to learn the chant. Great. Okay, thank you. I would just, one final note for Robin. I, I did find this book. Somebody else put it in the chat. Thank you for that. Um, this this doesn't have the, you know, it doesn't uh, have a CD with it or something or a link to, but it's, I found it, and I found it really useful to just chant the Pali in my own way. I, you know, I know something about the pronunciation, but it's interesting how um, you can, again, bring make this practice your own. Uh, it, you know, mm-hmm. you don't have to. There are many different chanting traditions, many different styles of chanting, Abayagiri being sort of a repre- representative of one way of chanting. But um, anyway, encouragement to explore and make it make it your own craft, you know, craft your own path uh, in the chanting as well. Thank you. Any other questions? Oh, Christine, I see your hand too. Uh, yes, uh, this is for Ying. Um, you had said, um, don't tinker with it, don't make it bigger or smaller. And I was wondering if you could expand on that so I can bring it more into my practice. Yeah, I, I, yes, I was um, a little concerned not having enough time to really explain it. But often uh, when um, uh, when the Dharma unfolds, when our experiences happen, uh, there can be a kind of a habitual tendency for our mind uh, or our ego mind to believe something needs to happen with it. And particularly in this process, uh, pity for some people, it can be a kind of just very pleasant experience. And so it's very natural for people wanted to hang on to it. And so some people will feel this vibratory kind of a uh, thing. I really wanted it to last. And so they began to maybe manage, manipulate, <laughs> or do things to try to keep it going. Uh, and for some people, it can also be unpleasant because the energetic field can be a little too strong for them. And they want to get rid of them or they get afraid like oh something is really wrong and that is happening 
And so uh, these are examples that that were um, if you're reacting in this way, we're now uh, in the ter territory of tinkering with a natural flow that is happening within us. And so um, by uh, trying to keep it longer, making it bigger, making it smaller, I mean, all of these things that we can uh, potentially do because of a certain experience that's happening. And so that's kind of uh, how uh, what I was pointing to. And so this flow happens when uh, really we're getting out of the way for this flow to happen rather naturally. And sometimes uh, it, it might take a while uh, for things to shift and change and see if there is a way that we stay with it and allow that to happen. Does that kind of make sense to you? Yes. Uh, yes, thank you. Yeah. Since we've reached the end of the hour or the end of the class, let me pass it over to Diana to, to, to close out. Thank you. Thank you, David. Thank you, Ying. Thank you, Kim. Thank you, everybody, for asking questions. That lovely class. I'm putting in the chat just because it's a little bit often we get to questions. Well, how can I support Sati Center and support the teachers? How can we continue to have some of these classes and uh, things? So um, I'm putting in a, a link if you'd like to support the Sati Center and the teachers. And just a reminder that we will be sending uh, passages at the end of next class, which is uh, Saturday, so a uh, day after tomorrow. And and also, there's no need to know the poly. If you like the poly, that's great. But don't feel any pressure. Like, we're putting poly words in the chat. For some people, they like it. Some people, they don't. It's perfectly fine. Uh, whichever way you uh, want to do it, it's great. And we hope that your path includes meeting with us again on Saturday. So uh, we'll see you in two days. And if you'd like to unmute, we can all say goodbye together. So. Bye-bye, and thank you. Bye, thank you, everyone. Bye, everyone. Thank you. Thank you. Bye.